Monday in preparation for today. But you, you guys know I, I was gone. I was in Arizona this last week. And when I came this morning, they were gone. <laughs> Someone must have thought that they were last week's ABF lesson. But that's okay. We have a whiteboard, and I have my teacher notes. So thankfully, those were not put away. Uh, but good to have you guys here this morning. And uh, we are starting, well, we're going to conclude 2023 with a brief series on the last five psalms. It's a good way, I think, to conclude 2023 with praise. So we'll look at Psalms 146 through 150. And you might be wondering, but aren't there only four Sundays left in Psalm 146 to 150? That's five psalms. That is correct. And so the last Sunday, the 31st, we'll look at 149 and 150 Whoa. together. I know. I know. Hopefully we'll be able to handle it, but uh, who knows. So today we're looking at Psalm 146. And before we do that, let's go to our God in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the Lord's Day, a day on which we can be taught of God. We pray, Lord, that as we consider Psalm 146, we would give praise to your name, that we would think heavenly thoughts about you, that we would be encouraged, and even at times convicted of our own sin, but that we would give praise to you for all that you have done for us and all that you are doing in us and through us. And we thank you, Lord, very much, uh, eternally. We thank you for Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you can open your Bibles and turn to Psalm 146. You'll see here that uh, structuring this lesson with three Ps, uh, praise God, put faith in God, and then praise God again. Hopefully you'll see from the Psalm 146, uh, the rationale behind that outline. But the message of this lesson is the saint's life is one of enduring praise to the God of his salvation. The saint's life is one of enduring praise to the God of his salvation. So here now, Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. All right. Beautiful psalm of praise there. Let's begin here looking at verses 1 and 2. As is fitting for the Psalms, this Psalm begins with a command to praise. Praise the Lord. What does it mean to praise God? When you think of praising God, what does it mean? 
What do you think you're doing when you're praising God? Giving glory to Him. Giving glory to Him. Okay. As you know, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So you, we could say that your main reason for being is to praise Him and enjoy Him in all that you do, all that you are. Okay, good. The question is, um, what does it mean to praise God? And Selene just said, glorify God. It's one of the things that we think we're doing when we are praising God. Proclaiming who he is. Yes. Honoring him. Okay, good, Amos. And, and what way might we honor him? Singing praises to him because he's worthy of all praise. Good. Other, can, can there be other ways that we give praise by honoring him? We can trust him, trust his promises. Trust him, trust his promises. Absolutely. And that's the heart of the psalm. We obey his commandments. That's how we honor him. Okay. Following him, obeying him, is one way that we honor him, way that we give praise to him. So we can give praise to him with our words. We can give praise to him with our thoughts, with our motives. We give praise to God through our obedience. It is our desire to glorify God, to show that God is worthy of all praise and exaltation and delight and joy. Now, why does the psalmist say, O my soul? He says, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. See, I thought this was a psalm to the Lord. And here it's now, Praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist is talking to the soul or talking to the Lord? What's going on there? Both. Okay. You want to uh, parse that out for us a little bit? Okay. Um, well, it's both. He's, it's kind of like uh, Psalm 42 when he's speaking to his soul and saying, you know, why are you downcast? Um, it's almost like speaking to his own soul, reminding himself why he's praising God, which he then does do. Yep. He's also talking about his everlasting being, his soul, uh -huh. not just his body. Right. Right. So he's he's praising into the depths, the uttermost depths that he can praise him, which is his soul, his being, his innermost being. Mm -hmm. Are there times when you need to remind yourself or command yourself, direct yourself? This would be godly self-talk, wouldn't it? There's a lot of uh, self-talk that's secular, it's not godly, it's you know, uplifting oneself uh, without a real foundation. But this is the kind of self-talk that psalmist will, will often engage in. Because he's, he's perhaps struggling to Praise the Lord. Or he needs, to, he just needs to remind himself that this is why he exists. So when might the saint need to tell his soul to praise God? Are there, are, are there occasions? Can you think of uh, times when we need to tell ourselves to 
Praise God. In times of struggle. They're in times of struggle. Yeah. Okay. Well, just questioning or wondering why God did set up things the way He has His plan, and we don't, we can't see the whole picture, but wait, okay, God's got it under control. Can anyone think of a time when he or she has, has had to remind himself to, to praise God because of a struggle? This would be an opportunity to get real. Not be real, but get out. Basically, I'm asking, can you give an example from your own life in which you have had to exhort yourself to, to praise the Lord because of some struggle? As Carrie had mentioned, that sometimes we're tempted not to praise the Lord, and we have to tell ourselves to praise the Lord because of struggle. Well, not so much, uh, um, not only just in big struggles, but I think even, I know for me as a stay-at-home mom and homeschooler, I regularly remind myself to praise God for things like dirty dishes <laughs> and wild children that are super loud and crazy and chaotic and toys that I step on multiple times a day and to praise Him that, praise God that I have children that leave toys on the floor. Mm -hmm. Praise God that we have food to cook with that makes dirty dishes. And praise God that I have loud children because one day they won't be in the home and I'll miss that chaos yeah. and loudness. <laughs> so I thank him for, you know, remind myself to praise him for those things because even though they're like mundane day-to-day -day things that I deal with, they are gifts from God. What are some other times or occasions when we might be tempted not to praise the Lord? And so we would need to tell ourselves to praise the Lord, tell our souls to praise God. Talked about struggle. And when things are going well. Okay. Yeah, when things are going well, hash that, hash that out a little bit for us, Keith. When things are going well, why would we need to tell ourselves to praise God? Well, that'd be just well, not exceptional. Because uh, you know, Joe and I were talking about it, the God's hand is restraining things from us. You know, you think about the calamities that could befall you sure. every day. You know, and the, the fact that you're able to wake up, you have food on the table, you have shelter, you have clothes on your back, you have a job, or you have some sort of security. You know, uh, we've said this. Would say, you know, I'll believe in God if, when, when, if he puts a, you know, a burger on my plate right here. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we live in a country where on every corner there's a hamburger stand, there's a place where you can buy a hamburger, and that you have a job, and that you have security, and you can safely travel there, you know, those mundane things, right, that 
people take for granted can be swept away in an instant. Sure. And it's only God's restraint that keeps those things from evolving. So when we are uh, experiencing hard times and we're experiencing good times, we need to be praising the Lord, and we might be tempted not to praise the Lord in either situation. How about... Well, there's also the blaming of the Lord, usually, when things are going bad. When things are going bad, bad yeah. And then, conversely, yes. I, have, I have done this, mm -hmm. and not recognizing your responsibility in either of those situations. Yes, yes. And that'll get us into the... The, the, the next section in just a moment. Um, but consider another opportunity when we have to exhort ourselves to praise the Lord. How about Saturday night and we're really tired, or Sunday morning and we are really tired. We need to tell our souls and the souls of our children, perhaps, the soul of our spouse, I know what you want to do. No, I, what I want to do right now is I need to get a little extra rest. Yeah. But I need, to, I need to praise the Lord. I need to go be with my brothers and sisters and praise our triune God. <coughs> Are there times when we might feel the pull to, you know, to neglect the assembly of the saints as it happens to some? <laughs> Surely. Yeah, I mean, I had that this morning because I was in Greenville, Carolina <coughs> last night at a wedding. And I really wanted to make it back for a prayer time, so I'm like, if I get up at 4 a.m., leave by 4.45, and I'll be back here in time. And I woke up at 4 a.m., and I'm like, should I really go? And then I did exhort myself, I'm like, I'm going home to my church, so yes, I'm going to go home. And, I got to. and we're glad you're here, brother. <laughs> I, I find it... Um, uh, it hits me more often to come back in the evening. Mm. Mm. That that you know, I guess I grew up in a family where Sunday morning was always a thing, and so it's almost like <coughs> brushing my teeth or eating breakfast. It's just some, coming in the morning is something I do, but coming back in the evening sometimes you know I have to tell myself <laughs> to go back and worship again. Yes. Yeah. I think for us the the temptation to us as a um, the temptation to not keep the Sabbath, not go to church, is much greater when we're not at home. Because when we're here, mm -hmm. um, like you were saying, it's just kind of like, yeah, we go in the morning, we go in the evening, when there are evening opportunities, um, that's just what we do. But, you know, we're going to Idaho on Saturday, and we're going to be there for a few weeks, and trying to figure out what church are we going to go to? How, what is this going to look like? Um, and just also anticipating our our family, they are not Sabbatarian, they're not Presbyterian, and we are going to go back to church in the evenings because we're that's what we decided we're going to do. And just also knowing like that's going to bring conflict because they're going to want to do things on Sunday evenings, and we're going to have to say no because we have to go to church, and it would be so much easier to just not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well said, Selena. So, uh, Keith had mentioned this, verse 2, I will praise the Lord as, as long as I live. So why is it important to affirm enduring praise as long as I live, or as long as, long as I have my being, which is the rest of verse 2 there? Why is it important to affirm enduring praise as long as I live, while I have my being? Well, 
Well, I mean, we want to finish the race. God has given us, just like Paul says. And if we don't engage in the end, that's not good. So I can't just praise God once I'm a believer, but I'm going to die too. Okay. Yeah, we want to run the race well. Other answers to that question? Another reason is in Him we live, move, and have our being. Yes. Uh, so uh, it's cause for praise with every breath. Um, yeah, and also, like you're saying, the journey of life. Um, you know, you even look at the Israelites and how they were the twists and turns, um, you know, through the, the ups and downs. Uh, we're commanded to do so, but also. As we grow in sanctification, it should naturally, more naturally elicit that from our hearts. So. Remember, God is not the God of our salvation at the start, and then he just leaves us in the middle or doesn't carry us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us all the time. He begins the work, and he completes the work that he had begun. He is worthy of praise from start to finish. And thankfully for us, there will, no, there will not be a finish. There will be an earthly finish, but then it's eternal praise. Well, verses 3 through 10, we, we enter into the next section here, put faith in God. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Okay. So based on this psalm, you have to look at verses 3 through 10 here. Based on this psalm, why should we not trust in princes? I guess maybe uh, behind, before we ask that question, we don't have a, a prince over us at this point. Of course, we, we have different levels of government. Um, what is, what would be a good understanding, a good translation of prince in our modern day? When, when the psalm says, complete your trust in princes, and we don't have a prince, should we say, well, I guess this sort of doesn't apply to us? No. No, you're elected leaders. <coughs> okay. Right? You think that they're, that they're my savior. You like the leaders. We think that we're gonna that they're gonna save us. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't happen here, does it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is the, the faith of the com the country rests <coughs> upon that this election. Mm -hmm. Or or the military. Or the military. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah don't, don't put your faith in the US Army. <laughs> oh, oh did I say that? Oh, no. <laughs> let, let the record show that was a chaplain. <laughs> Why should we not trust in princes? What? And why should we ultimately trust in, in? And you just fill in the blank. Okay. Original sin. We shouldn't trust in <laughs> princes because of original sin. Okay. 
Give us a little more. Tease it out a little bit for us, Keith. Well, when you, you try to elevate someone uh, above their station, and I think their station is, they are, they are men mm -hmm. and women, but uh, they have <coughs> the same original sin as you do. They carry the same burdens as you do uh, in their heart. Um, so they are subject to the same temptations, the same desires, the same sin as you are. Uh, and the higher you go, those temptations become uh, much more tempting. Uh, I would say a great, great example would be uh, a guy that we, we used to listen to, Robbie Zacharias. Mm -hmm. After his death, it came out that he was a serial uh, sexual predator, right? Yeah. You know, and so, you know, and I don't think that he started out that way. It just became those things. Uh, you know, and, and so, because of original sin, we are all fallible people. We are all tempted. We are all uh, prone to the same pride, you know, the seven deadly sins, you know, greed. Lust. So no one is you know, above that. Only one man ever works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Please. I think when you um, you give people in power, you know, they are they have power, and that sometimes you put so much trust in this manpower. It can almost become idolizing. I think of like the Republicans and the Democrats, and people like they'll die on this hill for this man because of his power, his influence. But it's all, I mean, there's only one person or one God, and a lot of times we view these people as gods, and it becomes idolatry. <coughs> Then there's, I think the number one reason, well, okay, they're all kind of one reasons, but uh, we're all mortal. We're all mortal. So we're all mortal beings. Uh, and I also think of uh, how God, uh, a few times in Job, uh, dressed for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Uh, essentially, getting after his humanity, his limited knowledge, um, and then, uh, yeah, what is man that you are mindful of him? Uh, I mean, I think we could also think in terms of what is man that we are mindful of him in comparison to God. Um, mm -hmm. So when we think about trusting, so. I mean, it's, it's like uh, kings, you know, uh, or judges, rather. You know, we want a king like everybody else, but God was our king. But instead, they wanted to um, just to kind of piggyback off of Ben, I mean, verse 4 is basically saying, you know, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. So anything on this earth is temporal. Mm -hmm. God is the only thing that is eternal. Yep. So anything that we trust in here on earth will eventually be gone. Um, 
whether that's people or money or jobs or whatever it is, it'll eventually end. Yes. Those don't endure. Those don't last. And I think we can, this verse has wide application, as we're already seeing, but it doesn't have to be restricted to people or organizations. It can be in reference to a substance, for instance. It can be in reference to um, good things, even. Gifts from God. We might put our, our trust in our own bank account. The money that God has providentially provided for us. We might put our trust in, uh, in food. That might become the, the thing that brings us true peace and true rest for a time. So many different things that we might go to. And we are demonstrating, we are trusting in this thing to pacify us, to um, bring unity, to give us rest. So it doesn't have to be a person, per se. It could be anything from God's creation. It could be an image bearer. It could be what God has given us in this, uh, in God's green earth, that is for good. Where are we at times tempted to trust in princes? I think it's easier to trust when they offer some semblance of control or consistency. I know for me personally, it's easier to lean on my own understanding when it's things that I know I can do well and that I'm confident I do well. I don't trust the Lord with those things because I got it. It's yeah. easy. And so I you are the prince. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. You know, looking towards myself and then looking outwards too. Oh, I don't have to trust God because I know this person is a good person. I can trust them or I don't have any other option but to trust them. Obviously, you have the option to trust God, but in this fallen body, sometimes it's not as clear as it should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said, Casey. I think it can be identified in times of fear uh, or uncertainty. Uh, so, when we are fearful, where we might tend towards our thinking and towards our heart in those moments when we're fearing, I think we can trust. Uh, in whatever we're turning towards. Uh, so I mean, we can think from like, you know, whether it's a political landscape, I'm fearful that this candidate might do X, so out of fear, I'm gonna place my trust in this other one, or, you know, China, the US, I mean, there's just multiple things, or, yeah, so I think in times of fear, uh, we kind of, that can help unearth some of where how about this to make application to our own church context without detailing all the details uh, putting trust in our own session there, there should be uh, trust without session congregation trust that's the relationship is not going to work well. But as your session has already officially no noted, we've, we've not done well, 
all the matters that lasted last uh, year. Or the commission, you know, the cross Creek commission that has been brought in. I think some people put more trust in the commission than they ought to have put. Now, there are men who are godly men who want the good of this church. And perhaps some of us have put more of our eggs in their basket than we ought to have done. The session, the commission, the presbytery, the general assembly, we, uh, we are not sovereign. <laughs> we are not the, the head, the king of the church. We're not. We are fallible men. men. And I am <coughs> including myself here. And so I let people down regularly. But trust in me, and I hope that I can uh, show you I'm trustworthy. But sometimes I think it's the case for, for any kind of leadership. And what are we going to do with that? When your leader or group of leaders lets you down on something, what are, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, all hope is lost? I guess Christ has forgotten the church for whom he died. Maybe we thought that Christ could only rule the church when those rulers, those early rulers, those, those, those elders are perfect in their conduct. Sometimes we functionally believe that, don't we? Christ has failed us because, well, that, that elder has failed us, or the pastor has failed us, that session, that commission has failed us in the way we thought they should have acted. But probably the best king is King David. If, if any king aspired to be a king after God's own heart, he, he ought to have conducted himself in a way that, that David had done for a large part, part of his kingly ministry. But even he, from the beginning and the end, was not faithful in, in all of his doings. And Israel would have found herself in um, that spot if she put all of her trust in King David. This doesn't, the, the psalm here is not saying don't, uh, don't give any measure of trust to people. You have to trust people. You have to trust your, your husband, your wife. Uh, kids have to trust their parents. We have to trust our employers. And on and on. We have to trust one another if we're going to have relationships with each other. But the message here is don't view one another as God, as if that person is God, ultimately where your trust ought to lie, because they will let you down. And when they let you down, if you've viewed them as God, then you have idolized them, and you are now despondent, you are now crushed, and maybe you question God's own providential unfolding of his events, his goodness, his wisdom. Does that make sense? God is not like these princes in whom we're not to trust. God is our protector in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Notice the God of Jacob. Why is the psalmist saying God of Jacob? Jacob's long gone at this point. Why do I, why do I need to... Care about that word, God of Jacob. Well, that reminds us that he's not just our God, he's the God of our spiritual ancestors, 
And we can flip back in the Bible and see how God took care of Jacob and provided for him. Yeah. Even though Jacob, in many ways, was sinful and wicked, God provided for him. So when the psalmist recites this, he can remember, he's not just my God. I see how he took care of my spiritual ancestors, just like he's taking care of me. So he has a rich heritage of faithfulness, of protection. Good. That's one of the reasons God has given us the, the Bible in its size, for us to pour over it and to see how he has protected his people time and again, how he has provided for his people time and again. We see God as protector, we see God as provider as well. God protects his people. He provides for his people. Does this protection mean that no harm will be done to us? No. Are these empty words from the Psalms? Surely not. What are some what are some ways that God protects us? I think we have to shift our perspective from looking at earthly protection to more heavenly spiritual protection. So even when Paul and Silas were thrown in prison, Paul eventually killed. He was protected. He is uh, you know in heaven singing praises to his Lord and Savior, right? Mm -hmm. So and the Lord sustained him through all that. You see that in his letters. Even when he was struggling with the thorn in his side, or mm -hmm. what have you, sometimes what we could describe as maybe depression, the Lord was sustaining him. The Lord was protecting his soul and giving him comfort, and he was able to find joy even in the darkness. So, realistically, we could have a horrible, terrible life, a series of unfortunate events, right? <laughs> Just one after the other. But through it all, we can praise God, we can find that sustaining joy in him, and he will protect our soul. Anytime I see the you know God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, I think uh, it's helpful to think in terms of reference to covenant as well. Yes, sir. Uh, which grounds our faith rather than just like, well, you know, he did something with them back then, but no, it's an everlasting covenant, uh, successive uh, as it builds ultimately in Christ. So that same faithfulness that he demonstrated to them. Uh, finds its ultimate faithfulness and final fulfillment in Christ, uh, who is the guarantee of our salvation, sealed us with his spirit, mm -hmm. and now, because of him, nothing can separate us from, from the love yeah. of God. So. Yes. I think even in the passage, right after the, our help is in Jacob, and whose hope is in the Lord is God, uh, hope is the, for the thing not seen. And so, in the very passage, it's implying there's a lack. There's a, the, the psalmist is sensing a sense of, of lack. or He's talking to us about a sense of lack and having <coughs> hope in God. Not, uh, you know, the, 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 I think he's answering your very question. He's not saying, there's no abundance here. No, there's hope here. Yes. Yeah, well said, Rick. This psalm and the next psalm, many think, are
are set in the context of the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. And you'll see that, in particular, with the next psalm, is it says the Lord builds up Jerusalem. Uh, he gathers the outcasts of Israel. God is providing his people with, uh, with the land, again. God provides for us in so many ways through this psalm we see. He provides creation. like He, he created us. In the psalm we see that he sustains us. He keeps us. We see other things that there's a taste of in this life. There's justice. He does provide justice. Uh, he executes justice for the oppressed, verse 7 says. We don't get full and, and final justice for all the offenses committed against us on this, this life. Though, of course, we do receive uh, justice, righteousness by the imputed righteousness of Christ. And that's as done as done um, the moment that we, by faith, trust in, not princes, but in the king. He provides food. He gives food to the hungry. That's the second part of verse 7. Our Lord taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. And one of those, actually the fourth petition, which we're going to look at uh, today in worship, going through the power of our catechism, is give us Give us this day our daily bread. God provides food. Okay. There's also habitation for the sojourners. God provides places for people to be. People who are wandering, people who are in exile. He provides a place for them even in that time of wandering. Just think of how he richly provided for the wandering Israelites. For those 40 years. They have, a, um, they have a feast, Feast of Booths, which is a, a festival that reminds them and gives glory to God for his provision while they were seeking a home. He provides, uh, I would say, intimacy, uh, connection with uh, those who are a widow. He upholds the widow. Do you think the widow needs to know that she has provided for him? Especially, especially in this context, in which her husband is no more, and her husband was the one who was to provide for her. He's, he's gone? Well, who now is going to care for her? Who now is going to provide for her very real needs? The psalmist says, it's God. Or the fatherless. Children without their father, maybe because of abandonment, or because of death, or maybe, uh, yeah, those would be two good examples. And they, they might be wondering, who's going to provide for me? The psalmist reminds us, reminds the fatherless. Maybe there are people who were killed in battle, who were taken away. God reminds them that he will provide for the fatherless. He is the eternal Father. We pray our Father to watch in heaven. He also provides judgment. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. 
So he executes justice for the oppressed, verse 7, and he brings the wickedness of the wicked to ruin. Have you thought about judgment as a divine provision? Can there be comfort in the soul of the righteous? In the fact that righteousness ultimately will be done? That those who don't bow the knee to God will end up stripped of their power and their abuse and will be judged? I know that's hard to, to think about because those are real people. But God gives justice to his people. And sometimes that means the termination of the enemies who have oppressed. We saw that over and over again when we explored the book of Judges. God as creator, God as faithful, really make him most fit to provide for us. He has created us, he has sustained us, he is faithful. Verse 7 shows us that he is our, we know he's the protector, he's the provider. It also shows us that God is the liberator. He, the Lord sets the prisoners free. As I mentioned, you have the, the context of Ezra and Nehemiah and the Jews returning to Jerusalem. They have been set free. They were allowed to return. Of course, the conditions were less than stellar. But they still were provided that liberation. Now, how were we in prison? We were slaves to sin. Okay. So God set us free from the dominion power of sin. Yes. Amen. What does Jesus say in John 8? If the Son of Man sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And that context is uh, of enslavement to sin. The Jews are saying, what are you talking about? We're, we are free. And Jesus says, anyone who makes, who, who makes a practical thing is a slave to sin. You thought you were free, but you're actually enslaved to your own sin. So we have been set free. Praise be to Jesus. Set free from the power of sin. The world, the devil, the threefold enemy. We've been set free. The, the prince, the power of the air, no longer rules over us. The strong man has been bound and his goods have been plundered. And the world, that which opposes God, has been stripped of its power. In fact, we were formerly of the world. And the world, you could say, is becoming increasingly smaller as the Christ takes people out of the dominion of darkness, out of worldliness, and brings them to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved Son. He opens the eyes of the blind, 
Blind by what? And blind from what? Sin. Sin. You know, there's a beach just coming in here. <laughs> blind to his saving grace. Blind to his saving grace. I mean, we don't see his saving grace. We don't see his goodness until he opens our eyes to see it. Mm -hmm. Yes. <clears throat> protector, he's the provider, he's the liberator, he's also the ruler. Verse 10 says, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This reminds me of Psalm 90. I preached on that. I guess it must have been this last summer in the Psalms. I think that what it was. Uh, verses 1 through 4. This is prayer of Moses, the man of God. The Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. God is the God of all generations. 
He rules over all generations, even when it, it looks like someone else is ruling. God is working out all things according to the counsel of his will, for his glory, for your good. Now, let's go back to verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. So I thought it would be nice if we contrasted that. We've already begun to do that. A point, I, as I was thinking about this text, I, I identified seven contrasts between the Son of Man, in whom there is salvation, and a Son of Man, a Prince, a, a, an authority, in whom there is not salvation. So, the first one, obviously, would be salvation. The Son of Man, and by this title, we are talking about Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus gives himself this title over and over again. It's one of his favorite titles. Ultimate salvation, true salvation, lasting salvation, eternal life is found in one person, in Jesus Christ. There's one name given among men under heaven by which man must be saved. It is the name Jesus Christ. No other prince, sorry, Trump or Biden does not give you salvation. Okay? Your session does not give you salvation. Your presbytery, this PCA that we celebrated. 50 years, officially, December 4th. It's not a salvific assembly, though it certainly proclaims the salvation of, in the Son of Man. So the A Son of Man would be no salvation. Okay. For the sake of time, I'm not going to write on the right side. Most likely. Uh, second thing I have here is, uh, based on verse 4, the eternal plans... I think it was Elizabeth who said that there's the, the temporariness of a son of man. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. He's got all the good intentions. Maybe not. He has intentions, good, bad, mixed. He's got plans on, on how the world is going to be a better place with him in rule. And some of those plans are good. Some of those bring about good and real provision. But they are temporary plans. Whereas God, the Son of Man, has eternal plans. And we talk about the Pactum Salutis, the, the covenant of salvation, the covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world. The Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted with one another to bring salvation to you. Again, found in the Son of Man. And that was the eternal decree. Okay. Verses 5 and 6, we see that the Son of Man is the um, giver of life. He's the one who, who gives life. Uh, he's the one who protects. He's the one who provides. Uh, he's the one who gives uh, physical life and spiritual life. We are told that we are created by him. All things hold together by the word of God by Jesus Christ, by the wisdom of God. And we're also told that he is the bread of life, given among men, given from above. And uh, I already mentioned this one, that the creator, he is the creator. The son of God, the son of man, 
created us. We learned, uh, we saw that last week with John 1, 1 through 3. There wasn't anything made that was made, except by him. But also, look at the heart of the Son of Man. In verse 7, he is, I just blended these, he's just and compassionate. He executes justice, verse 7, for the oppressed. That means he, he's just, but he also cares about the oppressed. So if you're oppressed, if you're spiritually oppressed, in particular, Christ cares for you. He cares about justice. He is the perfect Son of God. And he does not turn a blind eye to injustice. Even if at times we think he does. It's just that the execution of his justice is at a time probably later than we would prefer. <laughs> but foundationally, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you have perfect justice, the, uh, the fulfillment of the law in Christ, because you are in him, you are just, you are righteous. Because of what he has done, not because of what you've done. He is the liberator and our vision. We talked about John 8, Son of Man sets you free, free indeed. We could say of the Son of Man, be thou my vision. He's the one who gives sight to the blind. He's the one who opens the eyes of those who have been blinded by their own sin, blinded by the, their, their flesh, by the world, by the devil. He is the ruler, the forever ruler, isn't he? Psalm 2 is about him. All nations, kings will bow before him. Philippians 2 talks about the exaltation of the Son of Man, of the Christ. But a Son of Man has no salvation. His plans are temporary. He is a dying man. He is himself created. He's not the creator. He might be just and compassionate, but only temporarily so, and only weekly. W-E-A-K-L-Y. Not is weak. And sometimes the a, a son of man will enslave, will, will blind by his, uh, by his plans, by his posture. Um, and he, of course, is a temporary ruler. Now look with me at Luke chapter 4. Verses 16 through 21. Luke 4, 16 through 21. As he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up a scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. By the way, that's cited from the text on which Reverend Godwin is going to preach this morning, Isaiah 61. Do you see that here is the Son of Man, and he is bringing out what we see in Psalm 146. He is giving, because he has the Spirit of the Lord, he has the Holy Spirit upon him, beyond measure, as we're told, he will come and proclaim good news to the poor. He gives justice to the oppressed. He proclaims liberty to the captives and gives sight to the blind. We see how Jesus, of course, fulfills all of what Psalm 146 is talking about. So praise the Lord. And that's how this psalm ends. Praise God. It began, praise God. It ends, praise God. Why end the psalm the way it begins? Didn't we already get the message in the first two verses? Why did we end it in verse 10? Poetic closure. Sure. Poetic closure. So you could say a bookend. <laughs> the Bible is, is known to have bookends. Reiteration of a central theme. Reiteration of a central theme, yes. Yeah, from start to finish, Psalmist is telling himself and all of Israel and all the people of God that we have every reason to praise God, to put our faith in not a prince, but in the King, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, in whom there is salvation, redemption, sins. Surely that is great news. Surely that is why you are all here. <laughs> and why you can tell your soul in the next 15 minutes, praise the Lord, oh my soul, oh soul, praise God. That's what we're going to do <coughs> corporately with the rest of the game. The children will come out of their classrooms, the teachers, assistants, and others will come trickling in, all to praise the Son of Man. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, beloved Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for Psalm 146, for the reminder, the exhortation to praise you, even when we are tempted not to, when we struggle, when we are experiencing good times and bad times. We're exhorted to praise you. And we see the beloved salvation ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. We thank you, Lord, that we have salvation in him. We thank you that that union with him will never be severed. We praise you that we no longer have any condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus, because of what he has done. By opening our eyes that we might see our sin, we might see the Son of Man truly and give worship to you, O God. And so help us, Lord, to praise you we know that we do so rather weakly, and we need your Spirit's ministry in our lives 
to give utterance of praise to your holy name.